0: For most of us, when um, somebody is uh, dying or close to death in our close family, it's a very um, important and powerful time. And my um, father spent two months in Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston, and he he died there after those two months. And there was a... a certain point where uh, my family that uh, tends to have a lot of difference in how we approach things. We had to come together. It's <laughs> <That's> an understatement. <laughs> uh, we had to come together and make some decisions about uh, how um, his last few days or week we're going to be, and we you know we the family actually has never really had a shining hour before, <laughs> so <laughs> we didn 't go into this family meeting uh, with the hospice uh, people that excited, but none of us were really that hopeful for agreement um, uh, so my family has a mix of fundamentalist Christian and Baptist and, you know, kind of Protestant, atheist, Catholic. I mean, it's like in terms of uh, a certain range, uh, the agnostics and atheists have a pretty strong hold as well. Um, and then there's this one Buddhist <laughs> that nobody, it's a, the black sheep of the family is the Buddhist. Uh, So um, this doctor walked in and sat down with my family. And in the meantime, my sister usually would come in with um, two big bottles of alcohol every day and kind of make pretty big scenes. So she was fortified with her bottles already. You know, it's, it's more than just I'm saying. It's a pretty wild scene. Um, so he walked in and sat down and kind of got us the scope of the family. And, he, and then my sister, just without him saying anything, just his quiet presence, she burst out crying and just started sobbing. And she said, I just don't understand why my dad had to suffer so much. And he really did. He, the physical pain was so beyond belief for so long. Um, and she just broke down and cried and cried. And um, it kind of opened something for everybody, that just purity of anguish. And questioning, why does that have to be in this world? Yeah, why do why do people have to suffer that much? And um, this doctor, just very quietly, this hospice doctor said, um, after a long time, he said three words. He got born, and it was so. I can't tell you how powerful it was for my family because it was so true, right? It's like, what else can you say about it other than we get we get born? And by those three words, just that, and the quiet and the presence of this man, my family was able to, um, you know, it wasn't that pretty looking, but for us it was magnificent. You know? <laughs> I think he probably left sweating and exhausted, but uh, it was good. It was the best we ever did and ever maybe would do, but it was quite powerful. And then after he walked out, I talked with him and found out he was a Tibetan Buddhist. <laughs> and I, was, I just thanked him so much. So grateful. So we we will have um, in our lives these times when the, the existential predicament of being human happens. We get more close to it. And it can happen in many ways. Uh, there was a point in time um, when I lived in northern Maine and I taught um, learning disabilities in a very extremely rural area of northern Maine so I went to many different schools and I would have to go up to the um, classroom door and uh, I was considered very different up there uh it's, that's also an understatement. So most—I <laughs> don't think most—most most of the teachers even liked that I came to, to get kids out. And by the time I worked there for a while, when I go to the door, all the kids in the classrooms were going, "Take me, <laughs> take me," <laughs> which—and I'd be like, "Shh, oh, no, keep <laughs> it together, keep it together, keep it together," and um, this, the the halfway through, in the, up there halfway through the kindergarten changes and so kindergarten had just started for these kids and this little girl, she was so cute, I'll never forget her her name was Melissa and she had long hair and really petite even for kindergarten and so sweet and this is just after a few days of school and she, I was standing there and um, she went up to the teacher and she said <coughs> miss so and so, I don't think I like school, <laughs> and this was one of the most enlightened teachers I, I met up there. You know She said, "Well, that's tough luck, Melissa. you've got twelve more years of it <laughs> And I was like, "Oh my God." So you should have seen her face. Like she looked at me like, ah! like twelve more years of this you know, you can't even think about half a year at that age, you know? And but it was like again that human existential predicament, right? You know. Ooh, it was so intense. <laughs> and then if we're lucky we find, oh, um, we get this idea after surviving a lot of stuff right that that we close close up to this flower but um and then we get this idea a very healthy idea that we want to open that it hurts so much to be so closed down um and as i've said uh, we'll think that opening connecting is how it happens without the strengthening and it, it's we we forget so much of the time that we're not trying to rip those petals open or the flower dies it's 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 important it's serious it's like you don't rip the petals open of a flower but we get so impatient incredibly impatient why why is it gradual well When the flower opens, it's opening to the rain, wind, darkness, light. And as we open, we open the human existential predicament is that we're taking birth in this range of joy and sorrow, range of pleasure and pain and neutral, that stream of change we've been talking about. And if if we don't have mindfulness, compassion, metta, loving kindness, appreciative joy equanimity and many other factors it's like we have to be closed we can't, we can't deal with it so that, that those, the defenses each of our own unique defenses are, are natural and they're to be respected and important it's like if, if Miss Melissa hadn't been able to like somehow cope with that she wouldn't have come back to school and I really, you know, I took her hand and I'm like, it's okay, Molly. I was like, don't worry, you're going to make it through, <laughs> kindergarten, <laughs> <laughs> we'll see about first grade, right, you know. wow, you know, <laughs> so it's not just about opening or we'd all be done already. Just um, at the point of when the Buddha was dying, the monks and nuns and um, the community of lay people, everybody came around him, and they were really um, concerned about what was going to happen to the teachings. And it said that when um, he was asked, you know, what what should we do? Like, well, how do we do this? And he said um, the translation I always had heard was to strive on with diligence to strive on with diligence and I think for a lot of us that have that conditioning to um, use our willpower and and just know that if if we strive and if we push and if we use the willpower, you know, we're going to make it happen, right? Get it done, right? We're just, get it done, right? We're just, you know, we're just, as Jesse said, that kind of constipated look, you know, we're we're going to get it done. And that just does not work in this practice. So one time when I was... Um, early years meeting the happy say it out, um it's one of the first things I asked him I asked him how would you translate this strive on with diligence and he's of course he was like ah ha 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 he's like oh I say um, it's the fulfillment of remembrance the fulfillment of re- remembrance and so okay translated as the beginning part of a moment of mindfulness well what happens it's like the, where is the attention we remember to collect the attention and be here it's that remembrance remembrance to be here so that full awakening is that fulfillment of remembering to be here Now I think for most of us, that kind of calms us and settles us, right? When we hear Strive on the Diligence, it's, cu- it's cultural. It's, it's just like we just get our foot on the gas, and it's like <laughs> full enlightenment or bust, right? You know, And it's, we take it very personally if it doesn't happen within a few retreats. <laughs> you know, and really, we get like, well, then forget it then. It's not working for me. and this is like the art of life if if you take everything away like you're born here why not be here but we fight it we're very ambivalent we're very ambivalent it's human again it's the existential predicament you know we we just I don't want to be here or I want to get all I want, or I want to get rid of it. It's all that, like, not very considered approach to the fact that we actually got ourselves here somehow. You don't have to even know how you got yourself here. So, again, if you look at those initial seconds of noticing that the attention is been wherever you don't even have to really think about that either but there's that sense of it's called sometimes mindfulness is translated as recollection recollection it's beautiful it's or you could say the recollecting or the recollection but it's a you'll notice that something starts happening with the attention and it starts having a choice to be here a choice. You know, you, you know when you choose, well, no, not, not, I don't want to be here, right? You can choose to go back out there again into being lost, but you can choose to come back. And you'll notice that that takes a certain kind of re- uh, relaxation. So there's the, you'll notice the remembering, the recollecting, the relaxation, and then there's a recognition. Oh, <laughs> I love it. It's like, oh, hearing, right? Oh, Driving. That's dangerous, right? Oh, right? You're at the refrigerator. Oh, reaching. <laughs> Again. Right, you know, whatever. It's like, it's just waking up, waking up, waking up. Rather than asleep at the wheel. So that choice is, it, the choice is that moment when you start to notice that, um, you can collect the attention and you recognize that you, you either want to be connected with what is real and true or you want to be consumed by defense do we want to be consumed by defense oppressed by it or connecting with what's real and again this is this is an existential predicament that we, we have every moment So we can get rebellious about it or not, but who exactly are we fighting? (laughs) Good question. (laughs) Not going to answer that one. And during the 80s, when I was... Kind of missed the outer 80s a lot, and did a lot of three-month retreats with Sayadaw Upandita, and into the 90s. And, um, and during that time, when I was teaching, I would be—I came up with a um, way of trying to talk about mindfulness as R-A-I-N I I called it rain. But then, in the 90s and 2000s, I came up with RAIN drop because I realized that. I wasn't including the natural defenses with with the description of the mindfulness, and so it was becoming again this attachment to the mindfulness versus not including mindfulness of the defense. So I, you know, we hear, "Oh no, I don't want to be consumed by defenses," and then immediately it's like, "Then we're going to reject it, right?" Rather than include it and be grateful. over and over just the more you understand how hard it is to be with this range of joy and sorrow the more you're going to respect when your system needs to close or when it needs to think to um, take a commercial i really mean it the more you the more you know it's okay to take a commercial the more you're going to choose to be here So, the, I'm not going to go into this in too much depth, but it's, it's in terms of understanding mindfulness from one angle. R, A, I, N. R is recognizing what's happening. A is accepting what's happening. I is interest in what's happening. Some people have actually renamed that to something else. But, um. <laughs> and then N is non-identification. And then the drop... Um, is the opposite. So the opposite of recognition is distraction, disconnection, delusion. The opposite of acceptance is resistance. The opposite of interest. It was hard to get that O. (laughs) Do you remember (laughs) that? There's even a better one now. Oblivious. Obliviousness. (laughs) Obliqueness. Obtuseness. (laughs) Boredom. And then, um, pardon? Obfuscate. Uh, obf- obfuscate. <laughs> I can hardly say it, so obfuscate. <laughs> Indifference. Um, and then the opposite of non-identification, of course, is possessiveness, personification, um, identification, mine. It's mine, my fear, my body, my emotion. This is my emotion, right? This is my thought versus it's just hearing. Just some sensations on our cheek, you know, Just, just happiness, just peace, just identification, not mine. So sometimes I think we'll get frustrated because we'll feel like we'd like our AIN to be happening at the same time. But sometimes we'll get recognition like, oh, hearing's happening, and we, we slip off again. But it's a big deal. Anytime you remember to come back here, that plants a seed for remembering to come back. That's how powerful mindfulness is. And, and it's something that I have so much faith in. That's what I have faith in. It's just that sense that I know if I remember once that I'll remember again. The hard part in this is that you can't control the next moment you're going to remember. But you will see, and again I have great faith in this, the more you remember to come back, the more you'll remember to come back. And the less you remember to come back, the less you remember to come back. And so, the, what's different about this for us is that we can't get the certificate, put it on the wall, and say, I did it, I don't have to do it anymore. It's the opposite. And again, we're not, we're not trained to appreciate that we can't just go, okay, you know, got it done, did it, move on to the next retreat and think, oh, I don't have to do it anymore, right? Or the next whatever. It's like, this, it's so different. It's like you get that, oh, every time you get the attention back, you get your life back. I mean, where would, how could we argue with that? Instead of living in, in our imagination, in the past and the future, <clears throat> to be here. So I, I include in the R, you know, that, the remembering, the recollecting, but also um, receiving. So, you know, when you, when you notice a sound, a body, sensation, an emotion, whatever it is, that the attention, um, it's the beginning of moving even into the A, the acceptance. There's a receiving um, rather than the resistance, the pushing away of the experience, or the moving, withdrawing, the pushing away or withdrawing. So that, that receiving is the beginning of the A, the acceptance. They're They're related. And, of course, the opposite of the um, recognition is, again, spacing out, disconnecting, distraction. And I think that you'll appreciate how important it is to, again, respect that defense. Or the self-judgment, is, or the judgment of others is so enormous, you can't even take another step. How much are we really here? <laughs> Not as much as you'd want, right? When you start doing it, it's like ah, and it's shi- it's just the more you do it, the more you start shifting the whole thing to ah, appreciating that um, you can be distracted because it's what has kept you sane, and it's what keeps other people sane, so-called sane, right? saying the normal neurotic human being <laughs> distracts themselves a lot. And we've talked a lot about acceptance and um, resistance, but the another word for acceptance is allowing, and that kinesthetically it's that feeling of instead of trying to push something away, withdraw, but it, it's, a, it's just making space for something to, to live, like the breath You know, the attention can kind of clamp down on it, or make space for it to breathe, literally making space for it to breathe or to make space for anger to breathe, or happiness to breathe, or a step, or anything it, it's, and a part of it I really feel like is not being in a hurry taking the time to really explore and to let the experience emerge, emerge without feeling like we know it. And I was going to go into that in a minute, but I want to, it's better with this, because it's really the acceptance that, it, it leads into the ability to investigate. So whenever we think we know what something is, we're not going to investigate it. And hence, you know, how many times have we taken a breath in our lifetime? And how exquisite it is when we're dying and you're with someone who's going to take the last breath and and you just realize, oh, how could I not be interested in my breath? Yeah? How? you know, if you want to talk about insane. You know, it's cr- crazy. It's crazy. And it's I think it's almost like that we're so dependent on it more than water, right? It's like more than food. How many how long can you go? Not long. And it's it's the thing that's the hardest to be interested in. So we have to just have so much patience with that sense of like Wow, how did I get so disconnected? And and then shifting back to woo, it's how Melissa got through, right? So, in, included in this, you know, the, the defense, the natural defense of trying to avoid pain, you know, non, non-acceptance of pain, the holding on to pleasure, that's related to identification as well, too. But you see as you go through RA and then IN, um, you're more and more protected, you're more safe. And as you go through DROP, you're less and less protected, um, less safe, and you need your defense. You know, you need, sometimes we need all (laughs) DROP. You know, we're just oblivious, right? And, you know, (laughs) sometimes in my early practice, whenever I was doing walking meditation, sometimes I would just go lifting, moving, spacing. (laughs) lifting moving spacing it was just like to you know accept it it was I was like I was really going lifting spacing spacing but I was trying to amuse myself you know you just kind of it's okay I got the lifting (laughs) good job right (laughs) Hmm. And interest. Um, when you start kind of going through these, it's important to know, you know, that you're not a sergeant that's going. Okay, interest. Yes. Okay. You know, it's not. You can't command these. And of course, that can be um, disconcerting. But you you see by now. But you know, today you can see that if you put in your time, sometimes you can. So interest, it, 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 you know you can't fake it. You just can't fake being genuinely interested in fear, right? Or genuinely interested in boredom. But sometimes it shifts and you're like, wow, <laughs> I can be interested in sleepiness. Awesome, right? It's like, and that this is what, this crux of what the Buddha taught, that this, the suffering, the suffering happens when we're resisting what's happening, And when we finally can go, oh, not only can we accept it, we can be interested in it, that's that joyful interest. It's that deep delight in the truth, whether it's pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. And it feels wonderful. It's not like rockets are going off wonderful. It can be very sublime and serene and quiet wonderful <clears throat> so of course in this place of it's pure it's an exploration that birthright that we all have to really deeply explore this existential predicament it's like ah oh, it's like not trying to get anything not trying to get rid of anything but really just being with it and being interested And then the the opposite, it's like, you know, this When somebody is starting to numb out, including yourself, you know know what it's like when you don't want them to, or yourself. It's like, you're like, knock, knock, no, 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 don't go away, don't go away. But it's already happened. It's a protection. It's an emotion. Indifference is an emotion. Numbness is an emotion. It's not dead. It's just the flower bud had to shut down. And if you can allow yourself to do it, you'll allow other people to do it. And they really need that. They don't need us hating. or We don't need to hate ourselves for numbing out or being indifferent. In fact, if we care about it and make space for it, then what happens? Of course, that shutting, you can only hold it shut for so long. And then suddenly it hurts. And then something will start to open up again. Apathy. Disinterest. Being able to allow yourself not to care. Important. Or it's harder to care. You burn out. I like to play with it. It's like anything that I, I judge myself for. I'll walk around going, not out loud, if anyone's around, but I'll be like, I don't care. Because the kids are so good at it. You know, kids are like, in the, you know, this is the word in the 80s that started, was like, whatever. You know, <laughs> whatever. <laughs> we just pretend that we are not doing it, you know, but it's like, it's okay not to care. If that's what's happening, and that's how the heart is feeling, um, then that's just how it is. And if you can be interested in it, it won't stay permanent. If you judge it, it gives it more power. If you start hassling a kid for saying whatever, boy, they're going to just lock down those heels into it, right? We all know it. We know it in ourselves. If you were ever a teenager, you know what that feels like. It's a protection, and you can feel um, when even even in a room, it's edgy to say not caring is okay, right? I can feel it. It's like no. Oh it's not okay we have to care all the time right (laughs) or you're no good yeah. and it's like that's expecting the heart to be open all the time and to be opening to the most immense suffering possible without taking a break it's inhuman and it's cruel and it doesn't make space for the heart to recover and as I'm saying the more you can allow it the less you need it as a defense The more you hate it, the you know, the more somebody is needing to be indifferent and the more you're pounding on them to open up, they're going to just stay closed. Why? It's not safe. It's not safe. Why would you open up when somebody's hating you for being shut down? It doesn't happen. <laughs> it's, it's, yeah, it's like when you, when you get it that clear, it's It's funny. Unless you're the person who's getting hassled. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> hmm. You know that classic example, there's somebody who's just wanting to read the newspaper in the old days. You know, I just want to drink my coffee and read the newspaper, and somebody's going, no, 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 no I want to talk to you. But it's that classic example of somebody just, that's the kind of break they're needing. You know, some people, it might be that we're staring at the bulletin board for half an hour out there, you know. It's a similar kind of break, right? How many times can you read it? It's really entertaining. I mean, you know, it's so good. (laughs) Oh, look how many notes Jesse has. You know, whatever. And you look at the handwriting. I mean, I know how to make that last an hour. (laughs) It's the TV. (laughs) And it's okay. Non identification is the hardest one to often explain, but it means that we're not identifying with experience as being me or mine, or I. The experience isn't referring back to us as being separate. And included in this is like non attachment, disenchantment, impartiality, non possessiveness. And, of course, the opposite is believing we can control with aversion or attachment. And if you look closely, when something painful appears, we think we can push it away or withdraw from it, but actually, it's actually already there. And with with attachment, it's like the pleasant has already passed, and it's almost more clear. It's like, ah, oh, it's so clear it's gone. And yet... We're, the The reason it's, it's so hard is because actually we 've disconnected from the truth it 's actually gone, but we 're still holding on so how it feels is that the if my hand was the attention and life is a moving stream, it feels like we 're holding on to something that's already it's moving it 's already gone down the stream, and the Buddha taught that that 's why it hurts we 're not in harmony with the truth it 's already gone. Or we're like pushing away the pain, or push, you know, withdrawing from it. But actually, we're already there in it. So that personification—it's like it's—it's a process where we think, "It's my fear," and then we have to get rid of it, or it's my um, back pain, or it's my um, sleepiness. And you know, you see that part of you that say it's anger, and it's like, um, "It's so quick, it's like, "I'm not angry." We already believe it's ours." So again, to remember that the RAIN, even if we have a slight bit of acceptance, it's huge or if we understand a little bit of what it feels like to hold on. And in the the practice, when you really have a lot of mindfulness, you can just let yourself go, it's mine. You yield into it, you feel the contraction of it. That's what the Buddha taught was the suffering that ends suffering. It's letting yourself take responsibility for believing it's yours and, and going, ow, wanting hurts, oh, aversion hurts. But what we tend to do, and I've said it already but it's important to repeat it, we get caught in the object of the wanting, and we forget that actually the wanting is happening inside. We get caught in pushing away the, uh, what we don't want, or withdrawing from it. And again, it's not happening outside, it's happening inside. This is a um, haiku from Basho. He said, whenever winds blow, the butterfly finds a new place on the willow tree. And and I like that because, you see, the stream is passing so fast. Life is moving so fast. You You can be mindful at any moment. It doesn't depend on concentration. You can be you know, 15 minutes and some huge drama in your head about something, and then you might pop out of it and go, Oh, anger. Okay. Let me see if I can feel the corresponding physical sensations in my body, or maybe you can't, but you'll see the, the thoughts, and you start... It's like, I love when E.T. finally goes, Ow, right? It's like, ow. It's just like, ow, It hurts. that's the predicament I think of that butterfly landing on the willow tree or that moment when we recollect or remember to be here and that we don't have to resist what's happening this is from um the great um, artist Emily Carr from uh, British Columbia. She's, she's writing about her childhood in the forest in um, Vancouver Island in Victoria. There was so much to see as we went up the river and we went slowly because there were so many things to get over and under. Sometimes there were little rims of muddy beach pocked with the dent of deer hooves. Except for the stream, the place was very quiet. It was like the stillness of a bird held in the hand with just its heart throbbing. That's, that's like a moment of mindfulness. It's like that's how precious that moment is. That's your life. It's your life it's life it's like it's like the, the the it takes that quiet and just the stillness of a bird and you're feeling the the life of whatever it is pleasant unpleasant neutral and that um, impartiality of that comes with um, this practice, it, which means that we're not, we're not leaving anything out. Um, recently, we went, um, Jesse and I, and then some friends went on a bird hike in, on the big island to a um, forest reserve for native birds. And it's um, gotten so, there's so many um, extinct bird, native birds in Hawaii, um, It's very hard to face. Um, So, with global warming, the um, avian malaria has started to go up the mountains. So, on every island but the Big Island, the um, extinct birds have gone because they're getting the avian, they can't go high enough. There's not, the (coughs) mountains aren't high enough. So, in the Big Island, there are still mountains 13,000 feet, and there are between 6 and 13 but they can't of course go that high but there's a little window and there's a forest reserve and this man, Jack Jeffries has spent his lifetime trying to protect these birds and of course you can't just protect the birds you have to protect the environment and you have to bring back the, the native plants and Hawaii again was so mostly devastated and he has worked so hard to, to have this little place left for them. And yet, when you go out with him, what I find so um, inspiring about him is that there'll be this kind of... Um, you've been seeing, like, there's one, like, there's a hundred of this bird left on the planet, or there's like 500 of this person, and you're just, like, astonished that you have the privilege to even be with this being. Um, but then there'll be a pheasant goes by that like there's you know millions of them on the planet and you know people will just get so right you know like oh it's just a it's like a robin right you know why don't we want to get excited about a robin why does it have to be a hawk you know right but this guy isn't like that at all and you'd think he'd be more like a than ever, and he's like, "There goes the Kaliji pheasant. It's from India," and everybody's like, "What?" You know, and he just starts getting so excited, as excited as there's the Akia Palala. There's like two left of the, you know, like, and he's he's equally excited. That's impartiality, but it's coming out of such love. It's oh, it's so so inspiring. He said, every time I see rare birds, it makes me want to do more for them. And nobody could be doing more for them. And he said, he just like, he just, I love all the birds so much. (laughs) And, ah. Can we feel that for each of our moments? This is um, from Sri Nisargadatta Maharaj Truth gives no advantage it gives no higher status no power over others all you get is the truth and the freedom from the faults Truth can be expressed only by the denial of the faults in action sometimes um, we can talk about well anger for example is a fire and it can be so destructive right we'll feel like we're right and we get more right and we're just lost in the thinking we get more righteous and more right but did we experience the anger and of course, it has to repeat and repeat and repeat because we haven't taken responsibility for actually experiencing that emotion, like we would the sound of a bird. Um, but I, I wanted to give an example of sort of partially doing that. I, I have a student that um, he he runs a big company and uh, he'd never um, come to really losing it at a board meeting that he had, and he there was something that went so bad and um, he said that he knew that he was going to be very destructive but he couldn't really sit there and be mindful of the anger and so he just ran out of the room and he went in, out in the parking lot and he started screaming <laughs> and he called me and said, is, is that doing better? You know? <laughs> and I said, yeah. It's doing much better. You didn't damage anything. You might have had a little um, hurt in your own pride for being humble enough to get out of there and scream and come back in and not hurt anybody, right? But it's like, we'll get this idea that we have to suddenly be a saint, versus, well, you did sort of okay, right? Not bad. And this is, this is so important. It's like there, there was another time where, you know, after that his wife told him, why don't you go in the chapel for a while that he liked? And he went in and, and he was kind of strung out and tired. And um, there was a weed whacker just what he didn't, and he's an aversion type, and this weed whacker's going around, and he's getting angrier and angrier again. (laughs) And he's like, and then, but he surrendered, and he stayed with it, and stayed with it, and, you know, know, just be with the texture, the vibration. And he said at some point, it it was so funny, it turned into, it sounded like Gregorian chanting. He said (laughs) it sounded like monks chanting, and he just started laughing. Yeah, it's like maybe that's not a full force, like making space for the anger to come, feeling the constriction, the fire, the noticing the thoughts, and taking total responsibility for feeling the energy of it and not dumping it on yourself into self hatred or dumping it onto others with blame, but just letting it come in like a storm. It's possible. It's so liberating. And there, you know, one time, one of our teachers in Chazwa Monastery, Sayada Ulakana, who um, was the abbot there all those years, and very hard that he died some year, a few years ago, he was so good to us. I, I never really got how good, oh, oh, so intense. It's like he just took care of us for 21 years. And one time, the first year I, I went there, I was, you know I was so grateful to him for having me come, a Western woman, the first Western woman to teach in Burma and um, it was so radical and then at one point he said you know uh, my teacher's teacher told us you were all coming and he told us we had to take care of you and I was like wow that's amazing and he did he didn't just have his teacher say it He did it. And it was very radical. Mm -hmm. And when um, Steve Smith, who helped with Sayadaw start that retreat, um, when Sayadaw was dying the year he was there with him he went to the hospital to see him to say um, pay his respects and he knew he wouldn't see him again. And he looked really sad and worried and Sayadaw Ulakana said, oh, don't worry. Don't worry about me. I have total faith in my karma. And can you, can you imagine saying that when you die, just before you die? Don't worry about me. I have total faith in my karma. That's how he lived. He might have not been the super charismatic teacher that everybody seems to want, but he was the most kind, compassionate, wise teacher, quiet. When he came here to teach, one of the first things he did was have everybody chant um, metta for, I think it was an hour and a half or two hours in here. He just cleaned this place out, man. It was just, you just, and everyone's kind of sitting in a, it was like an hour and 15 minutes and people are looking at me and I'm like, <laughs> just going to keep chanting, <laughs> you know, it's okay. But it was so great. He was, he did so much metta. Everybody loved him. Every teacher I know in Burma that um, uh, knew him said that when they died, if he was alive, they wanted him to take over their monastery. That's how much metta he had. So, it's a good, good... um, It's like these beings are like lighthouses that are just, you know, we're going through the dark ocean and you see this light and it's so inspiring. Unconditional acceptance that the deep equanimity that's possible in this practice without conditions, peace, um Often will shift you into a place that you can't figure it out. It goes beyond the thinking mind. It stops the mind and it'll feel like paradoxical. But I wanted to bring it up because it's so important. So what it what it this this impartiality, but that's also warm, not indifferent but connected and kind, um, it it means that you relate to effort and effortlessness equally. You don't think effort is not as good as effortlessness. You relate to effort and effortless equally. Or you relate to being deep or being ordinary equally. No condition. You relate to conceptual and non-conceptual equally. that's peace you're relating when you're struggling That's that you relate to it as equally as when you're not struggling when you have no need whatsoever for reassurance you, you, all that you need is already within you or you relate to that just as equally as the need for massive reassurance So, you see, there's no contradiction in the paradox whatsoever. No contradiction is paradox. In the paradox, that's how you know there's peace. If there's longing or wanting more or not, if you're, if you're hating everything and everyone, or you're, you have total metta, you relate to them equally. Because it, no, it's not referring back to anybody. It's just another cloud passing through the sky. But you see, that can only happen if you are impartial, if you're not taking it personally, right? That's peace. And so, we, we, there's no peace because we think struggling is not okay. And it's ours. And we think that we're trying to get to this, this state where we're, we never struggle. And then we reject all the times we're struggling and and we suffer. That this is this is so important. This is if this if this was designed for the kind of peace that was state oriented, then we would only sit forty five minutes a day. Max. And you wouldn't we wouldn't design it so you have to go through sleepiness, restlessness, aversion, attachment, doubt. Why do you think it's designed this way? So, you can deal with sleepiness. It's a human experience that somehow we reject when we're sitting up, <laughs> right? And then we want it when we're sleeping. But it's like, it's just anything, anything, anything. This is about including everything. That's peace. And so, this is a perfect design. You keep going through it over and over again until you get oh, it's that, I call it mindfulness as a last resort. Maybe I should try try to experience, you know, be mindful of it. I'm going to go a little teeny bit over to end. Um, Probably a lot of you have heard of Angulimala, but he was, um, he lived at the time of the Buddha. And he was a a great, maybe brilliant, you'd say a brilliant university student in India. And his um, classmates became very, very jealous of him. And they kind of poisoned his teacher um, with really awful things about this guy to the point where the teacher kind of made it a fee, a fee. He wouldn't graduate unless he did this thing, which was to deliver a thousand... Baby, right-handed baby fingers to him, or he wouldn't graduate. And Angulimala um, picked getting the fingers instead of dropping out. <laughs> right? That's <laughs> so um, he he couldn't figure. Nobody really wanted to give him their baby fingers, so he killed the people. He killed 999. Um, people. And he had them as a garland around his neck. That's what Angulimala means, is a garland of fingers. Uh, And then he noticed this monk in the forest, and he didn't know it was the Buddha. And um, he was like, oh boy, (laughs) I got the last one right coming up, right? I'll be done. And he, he started chasing the Buddha. And uh, the Buddha, with his powers, could, could see who he was, what was going on. And he was... Angulimala was so strong and so fit and so formidable, and he just started running and running. But the Buddha was walking really slow, but he made it so that he couldn't catch up. And so this was... He was running as fast as he could and f- getting more and more frustrated, and he finally yelled out, Stop! Stop, monk, stop! And the Buddha turned around and he said, Angulimala, I have stopped. I've stopped harming every living being. And it was so powerful. Like, he, he was so um, transformed that he became a monk and became fully enlightened. And I... I it's it's a very moving story, I think, for anybody who has any remorse. <laughs> you know, if Angulimala can do it, you know, we can do it. <laughs> it's very heartening. Um, but I wanted to just end with a letter that I got from a, a man in prison. Uh, he'd been twelve years in prison, and he was given some um, CDs of some of my talks and he said um, it's a long letter and I've, I've read I think last year one part of it and he said I was alcoholic and a heroin addict as a young man I've done 12 years in prison was out 6 months and came back with 11 more years of which I've done 10 Through these years, anger, violence, fear, incorrect speech, greed, lust, and delusion were the intoxicants I lived in. My favorite story of the Buddha is about the first meeting with Angulimala, the bandit finger necklace, who only needed to hear, I've stopped forever for swearing violence to every living being. But you have no restraint towards anything, so that is why I have stopped and you have not and Gulimala said oh at long last a sage I can revere and worship at the blessed one's feet he takes the going forth and achieves in that very life Nibbana this mass murderer wanted that it's in his words oh at long last a sage I can revere and the Buddha knew and taught him out they are examples to us all when you speak about Apamada, in one of my talks, he must have heard Apamada. And I spoke of it as whenever I heard Sayadaw Upandita say, Apamada, he would say it with such reverence. It was so beautiful. So he was touched by the sound of that. When you speak about Apamada as non-intoxication and how you enjoyed hearing Sayadaw Upandita say it, because you could hear in his voice how he loved to say it. I really connected with this because to me the Buddha recognized the human experience is addiction and intoxication and the way to liberation is to finally stop by the vehicle of heedfulness. appa non-intoxication. The 12 steps of AA transformed my life. I experienced a spiritual awakening and later discovered the Buddha and Dhamma as my path. The gift of the Dhamma is the greatest gift. I know this to be true. I offer my gratitude to you for sharing these teachings and lessons with me freely. I offer my gratitude to all your teachers (coughs) for sharing these teachings and lessons with you freely. I offer my gratitude to the Buddha for discovering and proclaiming the Dhamma freely. I've laughed and cried listening to your talks they have been a huge support to my practice expanding my right view, right effort right aspiration, right concentration right mindfulness, right speech, right action and what I enjoy as right feeling bluebirds in front of us bluebirds behind us bluebirds to the left of us Bluebirds to the right of us, bluebirds above us, bluebirds below us, bluebirds all around us. May those who are friendly, indifferent, or hostile, may all beings receive the blessings of my life. May they soon attain the the threefold bliss and realize the deathless. Thank you. Let's sit for a minute.